We just read the 33rd Psalm, which is from the book of Psalms in the Bible. Now, the book of Psalms takes up more book in more size or more space in the book of the Bible or in the Bible than any other book in the entire scripture. There are 150 Psalms contained in this book, and a psalm is a song or a sacred song or hymn. Now, there are some people who love psalms, and there are some other people who kind of skip over the psalms, right? But recently, I came across a theologian who taught at USC for 40 years in their philosophy department. He has since passed away, but his name was Dallas Willard, and he wrote a landmark piece of theological work in American history known as The Divine Conspiracy in 1998. In this book, he wrote these words, if you bury yourself in the Psalms, you emerge knowing God and understanding life. This is a pretty big claim, Dallas. <laughs> Woo! Understanding life? Knowing God completely? Well, I'm not as smart as Dallas Willard, but I also graduated once. And if somebody asked me what would happen if I, they buried oneself in the Psalm, I would change Dallas Willard's words, even though Dallas Willard is much smarter than me. The words I would use to describe the Psalms is this. If you bury yourself in the Psalms, you will emerge knowing more about God, but also less about God, and with a greater understanding of life, but also with more questions about life. And if you're wondering what on earth this means, welcome to Paradox Church, my friends. I would go on to say, hopefully, you can embrace these paradoxical realities with open arms and laughter, and this embrace will help you become a more loving person with a deeper appreciation for life. That's what I hope you would do if you buried yourself in the Psalms. And while we may have some semantical differences between me and Dallas Willard, what we can both agree on when we talk about the Psalms is this. The Psalms are worth reading today. They're incredibly valuable for us to read today. And you may hear these quotes from me and from Dallas Willard and say to yourself, but Dallas and Craig, we just read the 33rd Psalm, and I already forgot what it said. <laughs> to which I would say, you are not alone. If you start to glaze out during the second slide of a scripture reading, I've been there, my friends, right? And I want you to look back at this 33rd Psalm, and I want to spend the rest of the time of the sermon in that Psalm. And when it comes to this idea of what it means to bury oneself in the Psalms, I just want us to just really get in the head as much as possible of this ancient poet that wrote this psalm so long ago. And I have found the best way to bury oneself in the psalms is to imagine what the psalmist might write if she was writing this psalm today. And then when you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to get my head around this, let's ratchet up the difficulty a little bit and assume that her intended audience is to atheists. Then you can't use words like God or faith or miracle. And you may say, why on earth are we doing this? We're at a Christian church. Why is it that we would have the intended audience be to atheists when we try to reimagine a psalm? I will tell you, I have found a deeper appreciation for the psalms when I picture it this way. And to give you an example of how this works, if I were to say the phrase, trust in God, a lot of Christians would say, amen, and yet no one would have any idea what we were actually talking about. Whereas when you try to reimagine this about atheists and this being written to atheists, you can't get out of jail free 
with words like trust in God. You have to actually say what that means and the fact that it's like if you were to trust, that if you were to repay anger with kindness, that things will work out for you, that is a much better way to say trust in God in my opinion. So with that in mind, we are going to rewrite Psalm 33 here today. I'm not saying it's better. It's just meant for our ears today. We're going to go line by line, and then we'll read the whole thing in its entirety, and then we'll be done. Does that sound good to you this morning? Yeah. All right. Four people are excited. I'll get the rest of you by the next 20 minutes. Let's read here. Sing out your joy to Yahweh, you who love justice. Praise is fitting for loyal hearts. So immediately the psalmist says, this is a song... For all of you who love justice, is there anyone here who doesn't love justice? Anyone who's like, I like it when the bad guys get away unpunished? Anyone here love justice? This psalm is for you. Everyone who loves justice in some way, shape, or form, this song is meant to be sung by you. So let's rewrite this by saying, to everyone who loves anything that is right in the world. Now, the next line says, sing out your joy to Yahweh, or the first line, excuse me, says that. Now, we can think of what it means to sing with joy, but I have to ask you, who have you seen sing out with joy more than anyone else in the last year? Think about that person and what they looked like when they were singing with just absolute unbridled joy. Because there are three people who come to mind when I think of who sang with joy more than anyone else this last year. Those three people are Jake Underseer, Shane Dye, and Bodie Hadley at their kindergarten graduation just two days ago. Can I get an amen, right? That's what joy and singing with joy looks like, right? To which I would ask you, when was the last time you went to a party and you saw adults singing like that? Gets a little bit fewer and further between. Something changes between our childhood years and the time that we grow up, right? I think about one of the most respected theologians I know and have learned from personally, and that is Dr. Wanil Kim, my Hebrew Bible professor from La Sierra University. This man knows more about the Bible than I will ever hope to know, and I just stand in awe of the wealth of knowledge that this man possesses about Scripture. Now, he came and spoke at Paradox, and on this stage, to all of you, he was talking about the book of Leviticus, and he was just dropping truth bombs every which way, and then all of a sudden, he stopped about 40 minutes in the sermon and said, can I share with you one of my greatest regrets in life? And we said, yes, please. And this theologian said to us, I just wish I would have learned how to dance. And then he went back to Leviticus. <laughs> and what's fascinating is Christians often think that Bible study is like the pinnacle of our existence, right? If we just know more about the Bible, we'll enjoy life more. And yet here's a guy who will know more about the Bible than any of you will ever know. And he's like, ah, I wish I spent more time dancing. Theologians should be some of the most enthusiastic dancers on the dance floor. I saw this in person when a great theologian who has also spoken here, Samir Salmanovich, attended Maddie and Jordan Cattenhorn's wedding and danced his booty off. Just gave it all that he could. He's having such a good time. Compare his joy to the groom's joy who is sitting in the back there exhausted. And since I saw Samir dancing at that wedding, and since I heard Wenil Kim confess to all of us, I just wish I would have spent time, more time dancing. I will tell you, I have a mission to try to be the first person on the dance floor and the last person to leave. Now, you may think, oh, well, Craig can dance and I cannot. You are wrong, my friends. I cannot dance at all. 
My friend once told Kimmy, wow, Craig is way off and he doesn't seem to care. <laughs> and yet, the moment we start saying who's a good dancer and who's a bad dancer, we miss the point because dance is an expression of joy. And life is too short to skip dancing at weddings. Amen. And I point all of this out because this is the opening line of this psalm. Sing out to your joy to Yahweh, all you who love justice. So let's rewrite this to say, to everyone who loves anything that is right in the world, may you sing and dance with unfettered joy like a child. The next line talks about praise is fitting for loyal hearts, the people who are committed to life. And I have translated that as for this expression of joy is the essence of what it means to be alive. The psalmist continues, praise Yahweh with the harp and play music with a 10-string lyre. Now, the word praise is a bit sticky when it comes to atheists, so we're going to look at that closely. The word praise specifically means express one's respect and gratitude. And when you think about what it means to praise Yahweh more than anything else, you are praising the origin of all that is this, as incomprehensible as it is. So when we talk about praising Yahweh with the harp, another way to say that is live with gratitude toward the mysterious origin of your unlikely existence. And then the psalmist asks us to play with a 10-string lyre. Now, a lyre is an ancient kind of guitar that looks something like this. But back in the psalmist day, lyres were made of three or maybe four strings tops. And yet here's the psalmist saying, put 10 strings on that bad boy, right? What it is he's trying to tell us, or what she is trying to tell us is this. She's trying to say, plug in your guitar and crank that amp to 11. In other words, when Justin Nishino, the man, the myth, and the legend who plays over here, when he does this, you know what we describe this as? Biblical. Amen. This is biblical praise, my friends. And when we hear these words and we hear this expression of joy, we are following what it means to play with a 10-string lyre. The next line says, sing God a new song, play with all your skill and with shouts of joy. Now I have to smile when I read this part because I think of the neighbor to Psalms. Just a few books over, there's a book called Ecclesiastes, which is essentially the Eeyore of the entire biblical collection. <laughs> In Ecclesiastes, the thesis is there is nothing new under the sun. The opening line says, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. What a waste of time. Meanwhile, Psalms comes along, Psalms 33 specifically says, sing a new song, there's plenty of new songs to be written. It's like Tigger, showing up, bouncing around. This is a joyous psalm that is filled with energy. So the psalmist says, sing God a new song. Let's put away your dusty hymns, shall we? And instead, compose a new song. The psalmist says, play with all your skill. Well, this is practicing, getting better, exploring new sounds and new techniques. So in other words, the psalmist is saying, for entire albums remain about the wonder of what it means to be alive. The psalmist continues, for the word of Yahweh is true and everything God does can be trusted. Anytime you see the words everything or all things or every little thing in the Bible, you should immediately think of suffering. This is not something that's trying to avoid the negativity of life. Instead, this is including all the suffering that we often don't know what to do with. So it's almost like the psalmist is saying, yes, we suffer and yes, we grieve, but we also love, don't we? We also laugh and we also dance. And so when you look at each of these different pieces, it starts to add up to what everything is. We continue with this line and we look at how closely 
this starts to be where it says, learn that everything can be trusted. So learn to trust, my friend, the psalmist would say, that love can be found in the worst circumstances. I will tell you, I've been through some suffering in my life. Everywhere I have turned, there has been some presence of love there. And it's different than I expect. It doesn't make everything better. But there has yet to be a space that I go to that does not contain some form of love in that space. The psalmist continues, Yahweh loves justice and right and fills the earth with love. Now, when I think of Yahweh as the God of the universe, it reminds me, this line reminds me of one of the greatest quotes in American history uttered by Martin Luther King Jr. when he said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. This line is so good that presidents had it stitched in a rug and thrown in the Oval Office. Now, to give you an idea of what that means, it means that decades after Martin Luther King spoke it, it still mattered all that time later. But what most people don't know is that Martin Luther King was actually quoting an abolitionist preacher named Theodore Parker, and this tells us that over a century before Martin Luther King uttered these words, people found it to be true back then too. And when you look at what this line says, Yahweh loves justice and right and fills the earth with love, it's talking about the trajectory of human consciousness. And I think that we can rewrite it with these words, learn to trust my friend in the unfolding chronicle of the cosmos. See how the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. See how each new day brings more love than the day before. For me, that's what it means when Yahweh is filling the earth with love. Let's go to the next line. By your word, Yahweh, the heavens were made. By the breath of your mouth, all of the stars. Now, we have often forgotten what the stars look like in our modern society. But remember, 3,000 years ago, this psalmist would step outside, and everywhere he went was like Joshua Tree, right? Just filled with a countless amount of stars. And when I say the word countless, I kind of, kind of funny because scientists have actually figured out a way to count all the stars in the universe with an estimation, right? And we found that there are two trillion galaxies in the universe, and each galaxy is made up of 100 billion stars, which means that we have about 200 sextillion stars in the known universe, all of which, according to the psalmist, are made by God. And if you have not sat with this number, our sun is one of these, by the way, if you have not sat with this number and comprehended what it means to be alive, then you aren't looking at the sky close enough. So the psalmist calls us back, and I think that we can rewrite this to say the starlight in the sky is a gift given to us by light which traversed the universe to, with the sole purpose of igniting our retinas. In other words, light traveled from millions of light years away to land on our planet so that we could see it and gaze upon it and enjoy it. And when you think about the number of stars that were made, the next line that we would rewrite is the symphony of stars are singing to, sing to us with a voice so immense that our largest numbers struggle to quantify their grandeur. Now, the next line in the poem is, you gather the seas together and control them, uh, putting the deep into its vault. Now, we've learned a lot more about the ocean since the psalmist wrote this psalm, right? We know that light goes down without much problem to about 200 meters. Then, if everything is perfect, like everything is perfect and everything lines up, Sunlight can actually pierce down to 1,000 meters below the surface of sea level. Past the 1,000 meters, though, it gets real dark real quick. And no matter how hard the sun tries, there will never be sunlight beyond 1,000 meters deep in the ocean. 
Now, that doesn't mean there's not any ocean down there. There's plenty of ocean. In fact, one of the deepest spots on Earth is known as the Mariana Trench. And we as humans in 2014 decided to send some probes down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, or at least as far as we could go, right? And wouldn't you know it, what they found down there, about five miles below the surface of the sea, they looked, in, they looked around with the camera and they found this little guy swimming around. To this day, according to my internet research, which is, I tried my best, this is the deepest living organism we have recorded in human history. Five miles below the sea level, it is called a ghost fish. And they could not believe they found it down there. So when we read these words, you gather the seas together and control them, putting the deep into its vault. I think we can rewrite this by saying the oceans are so deep that even the explosions of the sun cannot pierce the murky unity of water. In fact, yet in the darkest trench on earth, we discover life living happily, completely unaware of the existence of any sun. And while you may think that I'm taking a lot of liberty with the text, what's important to acknowledge is this psalmist only had the understanding that there was the world above and the world below. And when the psalmist talks about how the heavens shout God's presence, and even in the depths of the earth, God's presence is found there, well, our consciousness has expanded, and God, I would say, our understanding of God has expanded with it. It's there that the psalmist then pays attention to the earth when she writes, let all the earth revere Yahweh, let all who live in the world tremble before you. Now, I love the word revere because it talks about respect, but like respect with a delicacy and also an awareness of something greater. So I think we can rewrite this to say, we must learn to see that life on this earth is fragile. We must learn to see that life on this earth is durable. We must also learn to see that life on this earth is part of a much larger story. The psalmist goes on to speak to God and says, you frustrate the designs of the nations, defeat the plans of the people. There are few people as great in human history as Alexander the Great. And no matter how hard he tried and no matter how grand his empire was, it lasted for about two centuries. And while we talk about the grandness of the Greek empire in the Western world, I picture the mountains listening in on our conversation and laughing at us. Two centuries? Wow. We've been around for four billion years. You're going to really brag to us about an empire that lasted for 200 years? And when you consider how long the earth has been around, I would say that what the psalmist is trying to say is that rulers will come and go, nations will rise and fall. Our wealthiest empires last for a few centuries on a planet that is 4 billion years old. And then the psalmist changes to God's plan, and she writes, but your own plan will stand firm forever, the designs of your heart from age to age. In other words, but life endures despite the ephemeral nature of our empires. She goes on to say, love still abounds, justice presses forward, and the heart still beats. She then shifts her focus to politics, and she writes these words, happy is the nation whose God is Yahweh. Happy are the people who choose you choose as your own inheritance. And when you think about the nation whose God is Yahweh, it's almost like there's this recognition that if you recognize that God is in charge, you stop trying to be in charge, right? You stop trying to change the way the world goes because you know that there is a greater force than your own. So if we talk about that, let's talk about the thing that, you know, human beings just can't control, and it's almost comical if they were to try to control. 
Let's rewrite this as, stop trying to control the rotation of the earth. Instead, accept your small part in this immense narrative and all and happiness will then soon follow. Then the psalmist changes to things from God's perspective that she writes, from the heavens you look forth, Yahweh, and you see all of humankind. Now remember, the psalmist has very little knowledge of what space is at this point, right? And yet, when we consider things from God's perspective, I think that most human beings today would probably say, oh yeah, God looks at the planet like this. Well, this is very close to Earth, relatively speaking, within the universe, right? And if we go back to one of the furthest photographs ever taken of Earth, this photograph is known as the pale blue dot, and it was published a few years ago, but God's view is much closer to this. And if you're squinting at the screen and saying it's just a blank screen, there's a blue dot right there. That's the planet Earth, and that's a picture from near the orbit of Saturn. Now, it's from here that the psalmist wants us to consider God's perspective, but even this is relatively close because we are just one solar system in a galaxy, and we are one of two trillion galaxies in the universe, right? This is God's perspective times a billion, right? And so when the psalmist says, from the heavens you look forth, it's like the psalmist is saying, from a great distance, our individuality becomes indistinguishable. And then she goes on to say, from your dwelling place, you watch all, over all the peoples of earth. From where you are, God, you see all the people and you care for them. And it's like she's writing, we are all children of the same spark which jolted the universe to life. We are all united in that commonality. She then goes on in the original text to say, you shape the hearts of them all and consider all their deeds. There are a lot of hearts beating on this planet right now, aren't there? I think we're up to 8 billion people somewhere. In, you know, when I started, I was 6 billion people, but now we're up to 8 billion. And I don't know about you, but I've, there have been times that I've driven to large metropolitan areas like Los Angeles, and I felt overwhelmed by the sheer number of human beings occupying a very small space, right? And I didn't know what to do with it. I was getting anxious as I looked at how many humans were taking resources and how on earth is this possibly sustainable. And it's almost like I viewed all of these people with suspicion and anxiety and uncertainty. And yet the psalmist is looking at all of humanity, including the nations that are not her own, and she's writing that the hearts of every human being has been shaped by God. And a way to rewrite this is our hearts are all composed of the same stardust. Our shared humanity desires the same things. There is a unity and a sisterhood, a brotherhood, a siblinghood that exists because we all come from the same place, whatever that mysterious origin is. She goes on to say, a ruler isn't saved by the size of an army. A warrior doesn't escape because of strength. And when you consider what this is written in and the context where this came from, you have to remember the nation of Judah, which about 2,700 years ago was in the shadow of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians had a lot of weapons. To make matters worse, on the other side of the nation, there was the empire of Egypt, and they had a lot of weapons. And right there in the middle was the tiny nation of Judah. About 100 years later, they also had to worry about the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and then all the way to the Romans. Now, we aren't 100% sure when this psalm was written, but what we can say with almost certainty is the fact that this psalm was written in the shadow of a threat of an invading empire. And so when we look at our country today, which is a bit empirical, if I don't mind saying so myself, has a lot of weapons, 
we realize that we're all of a sudden a little out of place when we read this, right? Because we have the largest army on earth. And so when we read, a ruler isn't saved by the size of an army, we have to acknowledge our own context with this. Because I think the psalmist would write to us here in the United States of America by saying, our politicians will not give us joy with a larger army. And then when it comes to warriors, what we've heard so much recently is about how police officers you need to use greater force and greater force to enforce the law. And I think the psalmist would say in response to that, our police officers will not make us happy with their strength. Does that mean we're anti-police? No, of course not. But the idea that if we increase the strength of our police force, everything will work out, the psalmist warns against that. This is all in the form of a song. She goes on to write, trust in the horse for your deliverance and you'll be disappointed. Despite its might, it cannot save. Now the horse is a tool and is also a weapon that people counted on for its deliverance. I wonder what the parallel might be for today, right? And I think if the psalmist was writing to America today, she would write, trust in your gun to deliver contentment and you will be disappointed. Despite its power, the gun will not help you revere life. Now, does that mean we're anti-gun here at Paradox? No, but what it does mean is if you have this idea that your gun can provide salvation, you will be disappointed. The psalmist goes on to say, the eyes of Yahweh look on those who stand in reverence, on those whose hope is in God's love to rescue them from death or to keep them alive during famine. I love the phrase, the eyes of Yahweh look on those. It's but the people who revere life is how we rewrite it who hope that there will be more love tomorrow than there is today. That's what it means to have the eyes of Yahweh upon you. I think that we can continue to write this paragraph when it comes to the idea of famine and what it means. After all, the psalmist experienced famine and worried there wouldn't be enough rain, much like us today. Now, we use words to describe our fear of oncoming famine with words like climate change is occurring, we need to adapt to this climate change. And so I think that we can easily put that into this rewritten version of Psalm 33 and say that believe it is possible for humanity to adapt to the grim face of climate change, they will uncover something worth living for. And the people who believe that there is something hopeful on the horizon, they will discover something worth living for. And as we go to the last part of this poem, of this psalm, we read these words, and so we wait for Yahweh, our help and our shield. Now, these are surprising words because this poem up until this point has been bursting with joy and optimism and reform, and yet the poet here is letting us know that they're starting to get afraid. What would they be afraid of? Well, Assyria or Egypt or Babylon, right? And I don't know about you, but we have to ask ourselves, what are we collectively afraid of? And for me, the thing that I get the most anxiety about when I think about the future of the world is without a doubt, climate change. I have anxiety about this world and the future that we are giving our kids and our grandchildren. And I don't think the psalmist would change these words much when she writes, and so we wait for Yahweh, our help and our shield, if she was staring at climate change. I think she would adapt it a little bit for our scientific understanding of the world, but she might say, and so with our backs against the wall and with the ominous temperatures rising, we continue to live, we continue to hope, and we continue to love. 
For in you, she writes in the original, our hearts find joy. We trust in your holy name. And she would rewrite this to say, for in the very essence of living and suffering and laughing and crying and dancing, we trust that our hearts will be filled with joy. And that is the entirety of the 33rd Psalm. Now, you may feel like I took too many liberties with the text. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. You may feel like I read too much into the text, my own personal biases. I would say I did. That's who I am. We all interpret interpretations through our own interpretation, right? And when you think about what this poem is saying, if you didn't like the way we interpreted Psalm 33, I would encourage you to go back and reimagine the 33rd Psalm. It's an exercise that, for me, helped me understand how these words have been so timeless and to also think of the implications of these words today. And we're going to reread the rewritten uh, psalm here in just a moment, but I want to talk about what this psalm is intended to do, because I think it has a very clear message for us as we live in 2023 today. The purpose of this psalm is not a statement of belief. It's not meant to be written in order to get you to believe in God. It's not meant to be written in order for you to agree with it. Instead, I would say the purpose of this psalm is to inspire wonder in the reader. I think the purpose of this psalm is to call back anyone who sings it to remind themselves, isn't it remarkable that we're alive on this floating space rock? And when you think about how she wrote all of this song in the shadow of an empire, then this wonder is not anything superficial. Instead, she's writing about how we are going to inspire wonder, particularly wonder in the face of an existential threat. And the psalmist lived in fear of an Assyrian invasion, and today, I have to tell you, we live in fear of climate change. And somehow, what's remarkable about this poem is that it made it all the way to us today. It survived. And somehow, the psalmist and her people survived Assyria, which I'm pretty sure she would have said was impossible back then, which means that I believe we can somehow survive climate change. I don't have all the answers, I think it's possible. I think we have to change things. And at the same time, the thing that remains unchanged to me is the hope that we can overcome this. And the main point of the psalm, today in 2023, I believe, is that even with the threat of climate change, life is still a gift from God. And if you're an atheist or agnostic, you might change this, say life is still worth living and it's good to be here. This is what the psalm is trying to get at. Enjoy your life. Don't waste your life worrying away. So with that in mind, we'll close with the rewritten Psalm 33, imagining that she wrote it to us today, specifically to atheists, as she talked about what it means to be alive on this planet. To everyone who loves anything that is right in the world, may you sing and dance with unfettered joy like a child. For this expression of joy is the essence of what it means to be alive. Live with gratitude toward the mysterious origin of your unlikely existence. Plug in your guitar and crank the amp to 11. Put away your dusty hymns and compose a new song. For entire albums remain unsung about the wonder of what it means to be alive. Yes, we suffer and yes, we grieve. But we also love. We also laugh. And we also dance. Learn to trust, my friend, that love can be found in the, even the worst circumstances. Learn to trust, my friend, in the unfolding chronicle of the cosmos. 
See how the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. See how each new day brings more love than the day before. The starlight in the sky is a gift given to us by light which traversed the universe with the sole purpose of igniting our retinas. The symphony of stars sing to us with a voice so immense that our largest numbers struggle to quantify their grandeur. The oceans are so deep that even the explosions of the sun cannot pierce the murky unity of water. And yet in the darkest trench on earth, we discover life living happily, completely unaware of the existence of any sun. We must learn to see that life on this earth is fragile. We must learn to see that life on this earth is durable. We must learn to see that life on this earth is part of a much larger story. Rulers will come and go. Nations will rise and fall. Our wealthiest empires will last for a few centuries on a planet that is four billion years old. But life endures. Love still abounds. Justice presses forward. And the heart still beats. Stop trying to control the rotation of the earth. Instead, accept your small part in this galactic narrative, and happiness will soon follow. From a great distance, our individuality becomes indistinguishable. We are all children of the same spark which jolted the universe to life. Our hearts are all composed of the same stardust. Our common humanity desires the same things. Our politicians will not give us joy with a larger army, and our police officers will not make us happy with their strength. Trust in your gun to deliver contentment, and you will be disappointed. Despite its power, the gun will not help you revere life. But the people who revere life, who hope that there will be more love tomorrow than there is today, that believe it is possible for humanity to adapt in the grim face of climate change, they will uncover something worth living for. And so, with our backs against the wall, and with the ominous temperatures rising, we continue to live, we continue to hope, and we continue to love. For in the very essence of living and suffering and laughing and crying and dancing, we trust that our hearts will be filled with joy. Amen.